Um, just a, a few quick reminders as you're getting rolling with your Lenten practices. Um, you, you, we all want to be, uh, if we can, identifying a big ask, a personal ask. This is something that we're simply asking God to do for us that is special for us. I would really encourage you not to scrutinize how worthy your big ask is. This is an exercise in childlike faith. So God is big, we are small. Um, God is our parent, we are his children. We have needs, we have desires. It's just pleasing to God when we bring those to God. He, he can figure out if what you're asking for is not worthy of you, he won't give it to you. But, uh, but it's, he delights when we, when, we, when we ask for the things that we want and what we need. So I, I've got two uh, big asks for myself personally. One, I would never in a thousand years tell you what it was. It's so personal. <laughs> two is, um, you can torture me, it's not coming out. Uh, two is, I, I, I want to sell my house. I, I had had this house for many years, and it's like the last of my big, big transition, and I, you know, I'm anxious about it. I, like, I, I want to sell it, and I want to sell it soon, and I want to sell it for a lot of money. So that's my, <laughs> that's my big ass this year. Um, and then secondly, encourage you to think about identifying up to six people who are maybe just outside your close circle of family and friends. And, and as you remember, just to mention them in prayer every day for Lent and see what happens. So you just list them, then you name them. I've got, I'm working on my six. Joe, who owns the, um, my favorite pizza place in town, is on my six. And, and uh, a, a woman in Julia's church is on my six. And Arthur, who's a, a street person that I've gotten to know by name, is on my six. And... Uh, who else is on my six? I can't remember all my six yet. I'm just getting started with Lent. But, uh, but that's three of my six, and I actually have room for another. So um, uh, I only have five in my six right now. Um, and I'm working on praying for them every day. Um, my, my wife and, and uh, stepdaughter do something kind of cool to pray for their six. It's called praying in color. And they just have like a, a little Lenten thing and then you take colored pencils or crayons and while you're praying for your six you fill in the day you know and make a little pattern in the in the square and uh, you might even you know write their names and color it in or whatever and that's that's kind of a fun way to pray for your six so if you're kinesthetically oriented you can get a praying in color um, little thing on the on the welcome table and then also every day um, you've made may if you're on our weekly updates you might be noticing the words of Jesus that are coming your way it's kind of fun just to get the bare naked words of Jesus in a in an email one little saying uh, we're, we're selecting the words of Jesus from intimate conversation in this book the words of Jesus by Phyllis Tickle so if you're not on our weekly update and you want to be on it put that uh, give that information to Caroline or someone at the back table and we'll get you uh, hooked up to get those daily daily words um, so our Lenten theme this, um, this year is Sola Jesus. Um, and I want to explain what that is to, to begin. We'll be reinforcing this theme in the sermons um, uh, throughout, throughout Lent here. Uh, sola is Latin for alone or only. And we're using the feminine form, sola, rather than the masculine solus, which would fit with Jesus because it's a masculine noun, to invoke the historical connection um, with one of the main slogans of the Protestant Reformation that took place about 500 years ago. And that slogan, maybe you've heard about it, is sola scriptura, scripture only. 
Um, what we're doing in this series is we're offering sola Jesus as an alternative to sola scriptura. And I want to explain what I, what I mean by that and dive into one of the texts we'll look at today. The background is this. Slogans um, are, can only be understood in their historical context in which they arrive, arise, right? So 500 years ago, actually 500 years ago, next year, um, October something, yeah, is, uh, is the 500th uh, anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing his, you know, 95 thesis to the door in Wittenberg, um, where, where the, you know, the Reformation, in a sense, was launched. And Luther offered sola scriptura as the answer to the question, where do we locate authority in the Christian life? Who gets the final word? What's the source of final authority in the Christian life? Remember in that time, uh, Roman Catholicism had a kind of a religious monopoly in, in Europe and the Western world in general. And the church's answer to that question, where is the authority located, was it's located in the church, meaning the hierarchy of the church, the pope, the bishops, the cardinals, the, uh, the church councils that happen from time to time had the final word. And Luther said, you know, kind of stated the obvious, which is, well, the church can be mistaken. The church has been mistaken. Uh, sole authority resides in scripture alone, not in the church. The church is under the authority of scriptures, hence sola scriptura. Just as a side note, some Protestants actually never adopted sola scriptura. So the Anglicans didn't, Church of England, the Methodists who came out of the Anglican church, the Anabaptists, like the Mennonites, never really adopted sola scriptura. They had a different twist on it. But sola scriptura really dominated and you could say defined um, Protestantism, the, the Protestant Reformation, which is a huge influence in the Christian world. This little bit of history helps explain maybe why there's such conflict uh, wherever Protestantism exists, why there's such conflict over what does the Bible say about X, fill in the blank. Because if sole authority is vested in Scripture, sole to Scripture, sure, then our biggest battles are going to be revolve around the question, what does the Bible teach about X? And certainly that's been the case. Um, it's probably taken the church 500 years since the Protestant Reformation to realize that sola scriptura is a kind of overreach of its own. If the Roman Catholic Church was overreaching and saying that the church is the final word, maybe the Protestant reformers were overreaching in saying that scripture is the final word. Sola scriptura came with, with two cor uh, corollaries. One was that all we need to know is in Scripture. Like everything that you really need to know can be found in Scripture. And then second, that Scripture is clear on all that we need to know. And it's clear like to the average person. It's not particularly debatable. It's just clear. Scripture is clear when it talks about the things we really need to know. It doesn't take much imagination to say, raise an objection to that. You know, I mean, problem is, of course, serious readers of Scripture come up with very different interpretations. I think 
At last count, there's something like 30,000 Protestant denominations, all based on some different take on what Scripture says about one issue or the other. So Scripture can't be that clear to have produced 30,000 different denominations. Um, and yet, Sola Scriptura was a, a really important advance over the outre um, overreach of a corrupt church hierarchy. The time of Luther, I mean, the, it, it was dark days for the Catholic Church in terms of the, the, some of the popes and, and what was going on. It was, there was a lot of corruption. It was frank, gross corruption. And if I, like, detailed it, it would, like, curl your toes and curl your ears. But... So it was a clear advance over that, but I think it obscured the deeper truth that ironically is in Scripture. If the question, where does authority reside, is the question, the answer provided in Scripture seems to be in Jesus. Uh, so Mark chapter 2 is what we're going to be looking at. Um, Mark chapter 2, that's like early on in the story of, of Jesus. It's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest, might have been the earliest of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 2, already the Gospeler is revealing Jesus as defying one religious expectation after the other. He's not only eating with tax collectors and sinners, but his disciples are comfortable with tax collectors and sinners. And tax collectors and sinners, as tax collectors and sinners, are among the people who are actively following Jesus. And this was just, this was so upsetting to the, some of the other religious leaders. Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And fasting was a, a, a really central mark of piety in that day. And this, again, distressed the, many of the religious leaders. And then we have this interesting um, kind of responsive saying of Jesus to all this uh, upset that he seems to be creating by the way he's going about things. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrugged cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is Jesus' way of saying, you can't simply add my message to your existing system. My message changes everything and requires a new container. Jesus is signaling that what he's doing is radically new and it involves a certain discontinuity with the past. Um, now, what was going on in Israel in the religious community that Jesus was very much a part of? Well, 600 years earlier, you know, this is a long-standing tradition, so we can talk about 600 years earlier before Jesus was doing him, his thing. The first temple was called Solomon's Temple. It was built by Solomon, the son of King David. It was destroyed by the Babylonian armies, and the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon. And this began a, an epic transition in Judaism from Judaism as a temple-based religion to Judaism as a text-based religion. 
We, we think that like the Jews always had the Bible and were always arguing about the Bible, but that was a later development in the history of Israel as a religious movement. It wasn't until about 600 years before Jesus was doing his thing that this um, big transition began because there was no temple to worship in. And so how did the Jews maintain their identity when they were far away from Jerusalem? They started to compile some of the writings that were extant, that were around, and they started to pull together some of the stories and the oral traditions that had been circulating among their community. They compiled that into written form, gathered it together, and it became what we know as the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes Christians refer to it a little condescendingly as the Old Testament. Um, so, at the time of Jesus, though, the Jews were back uh, from exile, but they were still under Roman occupation. The temple that they worshipped in was a temple that had been rebuilt by King Herod. King Herod was like a corrupt, half-Jewish client king of Rome. Like, religious people had no, no particular respect for Herod, and he served at Rome's pleasure. Um, the high priest who was overseeing the temple was always served at Rome's pleasure. So the temple system was really corrupted to a, a significant degree. One of the major Jewish factions of the time, the Essenes, were actually boycotting temple worship altogether. They said the whole place is so corrupt, it's so unclean, we're going to do our worship out in the desert. John the Baptist may have come from among the Essenes. So Judaism is well on its way in the time of Jesus to becoming a text-based, we would say a Bible-based religion. Um, and the text-based specialists of Judaism at that time would have been the scribes, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, with whom Jesus had a lot of conflict. The heart of the Bible, and the uh, Hebrew term is Torah, or the law of Moses, and the heart of Torah is Sabbath. Sabbath keeping has become the main mark of the faithful Jew, even more than worshiping in the temple. It's super hard for us as 21st century um, folks interested in Christianity. Super hard for us to appreciate how central Sabbath keeping was to the Jewish identity. I mean, it was reinforced in Scripture as much as anything. The law of Moses introduces it, uh, the Ten Commandments no less, so it's like, it's like a big deal. It's reinforced in the prophetic tradition, which is like the Reformation movement of Judaism. It was actually part of the Jewish understanding of nature, the creation itself. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. That embeds Sabbath-keeping is like you do it because to do it is to respect the way the universe works, nature itself. And the question of whether to observe the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday Sabbath, uh, whether that is binding on all Christians was not actually resolved in the New Testament period. You know, the way we handle it now, which is very laissez-faire, that's, like that's like a modern approach to Sabbath. Even a hundred years ago, that, that wouldn't have uh, held sway in the Christian tradition. Which brings us to the next section, Mark chapter 2. Are you with me? Yes. Okay, we're working this together today, okay? <laughs> Stay with me, please. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. One Sabbath, 
Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So there were strict interpretations of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and there were looser interpretations of what you couldn't do, could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Apparently, the Torah wasn't clear enough to rule out differing interpretations, just as we see it today. But notice the claim that Jesus makes in relation to Sabbath law, rooted in Torah, rooted in the Bible. He's not just claiming to be the best interpreter of Sabbath law. It's not like, hey, there's the school of Gamaliel and the school of Hillel and the Messianic school, the school of Jesus is the correct interpretive lens to read the Bible through. No, he's claiming to be Lord of Sabbath. That's a big deal. To claim he is Lord of Sabbath would by very powerful inference mean he's Lord of Scripture. He's, he's Lord of the source of the Sabbath teaching for the Jewish people. And it's also clear that Jesus will exercise his lordship over Sabbath for, we might say, humanitarian reasons. Now we're starting to get a feel for the kind of person Jesus is. He's willing to overrule Sabbath understanding for humanitarian reasons. If there's an approach to Sabbath that is not a blessing for human beings in application, in, in fleshing it out and working it out on the ground of real life, then he will step in as Lord of Sabbath and overrule that. He feels free to do that. Notice the example he cites. David and his men eating consecrated bread that was reserved for priests alone to eat. Why? Because they were hungry and in need. He's the humanitarian Lord. He's Lord of the Sabbath for the sake of humans. The title he uses to refer to himself as Lord of Sabbath is Son of Man, really, Son of the Human. It's like a human being like the rest of us. Now, Lord of Sabbath is different than Jesus was a Sabbath rebel. You know, like he'd reached the teen years. He was tired of synagogue. He was like a sulky teenager chafing at the obligation of Sabbath observance. No, 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 no. Jesus honored the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath. He was, he was as devout as any other Jew and his Sabbath observance. But a Sabbath keeping wasn't for humans. A blessing. He played the Lord of Sabbath card. And he, he played it freely. Now, this sounds so reasonable to our ears, right? We're like, yeah, you go, Jesus, you know, like, way to go. It's awesome. I mean, it, 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 it like fits the modern narrative so well. But it was so radical 
to their ears. How radical? Well, the whole section on Sabbath keeping and Jesus' approach to Sabbath ends with a rather gloomy note. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, the like dirty politicians, how they might kill Jesus. So this did not go over really, really well. And this is very early in the gospel, Mark chapter 2. Now, one big objection to the idea of sola Jesus would, would be this. And, and maybe you can imagine someone having this objection. Look, we have the Bible, like right here, in plain sight. The Bible, open and read. And as long as you can read, you can get the message. We can read it. We can figure out what it says without a lot of hocus pocus and woo-woo. You know, this is like, this is here. This is now. The unstated implication behind that objection is, you know, appealing to Jesus as the sole authority isn't practical because Jesus isn't right here like the Bible is. If Jesus does speak directly, communication with him is pretty dodgy. Relying on this kind of communication isn't really, it's not gonna, it's not really very safe. I mean, appeal to a text in a black and white on a page is much less subjective than that. Now, can you see some problems with this objection? Well, yeah, and these are things that we understand more clearly in the 21st century. I mean, we now know that our subjectivity affects our reading of Scripture as much as anything else. I mean, we have to, we're the reader, and it's coming through our brain and through our experiences and our lenses and all that. So our knowledge of Scripture is not objective without bias, etc. Subjectivity is the price we pay for being human. God can deal with it. He's over it. He knows who we are. God can deal with our subjectivity. It's not a showstopper when it comes to truth. And then another problem with this objection is it just doesn't fit the early church at all. This way of thinking just does not fit the early Jesus movement. The early church wasn't at all skeptical that the risen Jesus could guide people directly. This would be like the biggest culture shock if we came into the early church. How vivid and what a high expectation they had that ordinary people could hear Jesus, be guided by Jesus, and Jesus would tell you to do stuff and you could do it. The, the church came into being through the daring proclamation of a risen Jesus who was like an active agent available through the Holy Spirit with the expectation that people who are largely unfamiliar with Scripture, as it spread through the Gentile world especially, could experience Jesus through the Spirit and say, you know, Jesus is leading me and guiding me. And to our rationalistic approach, that's like, whoa, that sounds like a lot of hocus-pocus and a lot of woo-woo, and, and that all sounds very dangerous, but that was the early church that produced the New Testament. The faith that spawned the Jesus movement said Jesus isn't alive and he can make himself known to people. 
Scripture was a sacred, inspired support, but Jesus himself was guiding people, sometimes in ways that were contrary to conventional readings of Scripture. We see this in the book of Acts especially. There's another big objection to Sola Jesus, and this is, I, I like this objection better. <laughs> I'm more sympathetic to this objection because it's, it's the fear that it dishonors Scripture or that it would breed neglect of Scripture as a source of inspiration or as, as an important um, voice in, in, a, in a Christian's life. But I don't think we honor Scripture by loading up loading it up with expectations it wasn't designed to bear. Like marriage would be an example of, of a thing like that, you know? Um, modern marriage really suffers a lot as an institution because it has to carry so much weight in our society where communal ties are kind of weakened all across the board. So in the modern world, marriage is under great strain because so much is expected of marriage. People live a lot longer, and to stay faithfully married to someone is, it's not like a 10-year project. It could be a 40, 50, 60, 70-year project. You're, you're in many marriages, the, your, your spouse is not just your only lover. Your spouse is too often your only close friend, the only person you can turn to in a time of need and count on them to take you to the doctor's office or, or help you move a couch or your only trusted counselor. This is true especially of men in our culture. The average middle-aged male has 1.2 friends. 1.2 friends. This is, this is why widows really struggle when they lose their wives because it's, often it's like their whole like, connectional system is through the spice, the spouse. The, the weight of impossible expectations like that can harm and has harmed marriage. So, Scripture can actually function better, can play a more fruitful role when we don't try to load it up, load it up with expectations that it wasn't designed to meet. Remember that old saw, don't put the cart before the horse. You know, it's such a familiar one. But just picture that. You know, you can picture it like, Pulling a wagon, you know, you pull a wagon, the red wagon thing, and with the, with the big long wagon handle. You know, it's really easy to guide the wagon when you're pulling it, but when you try to push the wagon with the handle, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it, it doesn't work. It's a mess. Picture a horse trying to push a cart rather than pull it. Just what a jagged mess that would be. Because the cart has been misplaced. It's ahead of the horse. It's hard on the horse. Horse is butting his head with that cart all the time trying to push it. And the cart gets banged up too. It's knocking into all sorts of things. When Jesus is given his due, the cart and the horse are both better off. Sola Jesus, an alternative to Sola Scriptura, 
preserves a better role and a better place for Scripture, where Scripture can be more fruitful, can have a more um, powerful influence on our lives. Okay, let's end with, um, during, during Lent, we want to introduce little um, calming prayer practices uh, that you can sample. And I thought, you know, for the first one, how about the Jesus prayer? Is that genius or what? <laughs> the Jesus prayer. So the Jesus prayer is what um, the Eastern Church um, teaches as the baseline for prayer. You want to learn how to pray, first learn the Jesus prayer. It's simpler than the Lord's prayer. This is great. Jesus prayer, the long form is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're flipping geniuses. That's so much easier than the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? There you go. And the thing about the Jesus Prayer, you can simplify it. You can make it Jesus, have mercy. You can make it Jesus, have mercy on me. You can make it Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. You can just, any kind of variety. It's probably better not to make it Buddha if it's going to be the Jesus Prayer. So that's like the, you know, it's like, it's, it's a Jesus Prayer, so let's keep it keep it with Jesus. So, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, you know those prayer beads that some of you guys made last, last week? You can use the prayer beads with the Jesus prayer. So, these are like our Lenten prayer beads. Uh, okay, it's a little iconoclastic, I'll say. But um, this represents the, it's not iconoclastic, that's the wrong word. I've meant some other word, but um, uh, this represents the um, uh, big church ask, the thing, you know, we're praying for this, you know, Blue Ocean Faith churches and all that kind of stuff. This is your big personal ask here. This is the big, big baby right there. And that's me praying for that thing that no way am I ever going to tell you what it is. And then that other thing about the house. And then these big honkers right here, these big black ones are um, for praying for your six. But in between, you got the little beads. What do you do with the little beads? you can use the little bead for the Jesus prayer. So you put your hand right there after you've done your prayer for everybody and prayer for your big ask. And then, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ. You pick it up when I'm laying down. I think it's about 40 in one, one repetition. And this is kind of a meditative, calming way to prayer uh, to pray and it's 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 very calming i highly recommend it uh, to interrupt um you know crazy thinking um let's take a moment if you'd like to give it a try we'll just take a couple of minutes and you can prayer pray whatever version quietly inside your head of the jesus prayer you'd like to
There you go. Sorry to interrupt you, but your two minutes is up, class. So we're going to have our offering now. So thanks to everyone who gives online. Some of you like to give in this old-fashioned way. So we make that option available to you, and we'll sing the doxology as we pass the offering. <laughs> 